Guys, Lordship versus Free Grace, again, in some ways, probably a, a faulty comparison to say, there your Lordship or are you Free Grace? That's, for me, the reason I framed it up as Lordship versus Free Grace is to, number one, uh, put my two cents in about what's going on in the YouTube space, and I'm Free Grace, I'm Lordship. Um, I do want to share my thoughts, but secondly, all the scripture I'm using isn't to support, defend, disprove either side. Now, often I'll use different arguments posed by either side, either lordship or free grace, in order to kind of present a common perspective on a passage I'm going through. And if, I, if it's different than what I believe, I'll show you why I believe what, why I believe differently than that common view. And so I've done that with a few passages today. I know I've been hitting this pretty hard and I've been in kind of debate mode and the Lord, I believe, softened me up to this episode. I was ready to go full blown fruit. What is fruit? How does fruit look? Is it guaranteed? Is it automatic? All these different things should we look for, you know, and I, I just knew that I've been hitting this so hard and I've been in such a almost defensive position taking on these things, anticipating the blows, anticipating the different uh, arguments people bring forth, that I haven't been, I haven't really um, been doing my job as a, as a pastor. Um, and I consider myself someone who cares for and shepherds people. I've been doing my job to strengthen the feeble knees and the weak hands of people who are in here. And it doesn't matter what side you're on. It doesn't matter if you don't even fall under either of these categories. Some of you are lordship, some of you are free grace, some of you are neither, but in every single camp, some of you are very insecure about your faith. You don't know where you stand. You stand, yeah, you're very unsure. You're looking for a certain amount of stuff, you're looking for a certain degree of repentance, you're looking for a certain amount of fruit and a certain amount of change and to really validate faith on the lordship side of things or, or you're on free grace and you're like, I know that there's nothing necessarily to look for or to add, faith is enough, but there's still that lingering sense of condemnation and shame and, and I know that some of you are in here and so I, what I wanna do today is I wanna know, I want you to know that I know, <laughs> like I know where you're at. I know the struggle you're going through, not knowing each and every day where you stand with God and if something's changed or if you were ever real or if your faith is legit. So here I am to talk about something that we need to talk about. We've so far talked about faith. We spent th three hours defining faith. We talked about repentance, almost two and a half hours talking just about repentance. Now what we need to establish is, hey, when I believe synonymous with repentance, when that happens, what, what takes place? In other words, instead of just talking about what leads into or, or, or is the necessary component of salvation, what we're gonna talk about now is what is the salvation package that is given? Now, I, I understand that I'm not gonna be able to exhaustively teach on everything, on every component of the believer's inheritance and future reality and how we're gonna reign with Christ and judge angels, but I am gonna at least look at everything we have, the microsecond we believe. Then what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at what does it mean that we are a new creation, the born again experience, being sons and daughters of God. What does it mean we're, that we are the new humanity in Christ? We're gonna look at all those passages. And at the end of this, I really want to give you guys assurance. 
because possibly I believe I've done my due diligence in presenting the biblical data and defending the scriptures in terms of guarding against wrong interpretations and other conclusions people come to that I don't believe are right. I think I've done that, but inadvertently, uh, the information, I don't think I am, am the issue. I believe the data or the way someone processed that data has resulted in a greater burden. And some of you are burdened. So, so my heart this morning is that I'm burdened for those of you, for those of you who don't know where you stand and you're not sure. Like you have that intellectual, I know it, I know it, I know it, but there is this deeper sense of, but what if? And what if they, and what if I, and what if it's not? And there are these questions, there are these doubts, there are these kinds of scary scenarios that play out in your mind when you fall asleep. What if I don't wake up in the morning and I stand before the living God and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. What, what if I haven't trusted in Jesus enough? What if I haven't abandoned self-righteousness enough? So I just want to give you assurance that like the end of 1 John, John writes, he goes, I write these things so that you may know you have eternal life. That's my goal today. I'm not so much going to say, this is what this is, this is what this is. I'm just trying to find common ground. Let's pause on the whole, are you lordship or are you free, Grace? And let's find common ground. I believe that everything I'm about to say, either side you fall on, we all agree on these things. We all agree on these things. And so, you really need to understand what happens the microsecond you believe. The microsecond you believe. This is not later, this is not eventually, this is not hopefully, this is not if you work hard enough, if you prove yourself, this is the minute you believe, which is to repent, turn to God, synonymous terms. Everything that happens. I'm gonna go through a huge list. I have over 70 scripture passages. I'm gonna say that again. I have over 70 passages. Passages are not just singular verses. Passages include multiple verses. And so here's everything. I would encourage you to take notes. I'm going to blast through this and then we'll get to the new man, the new creation, the born again experience, because I think by laying this foundation, it's going to make more sense to you why I conclude what I do about fruit. If we don't lay the foundation of what happens when I believe and when I repent, then the whole fruit conversation is going to go over your head. The whole lifestyle and character of Jesus being produced in my life and endurance and, and those things that I have different views on than most people, they won't make sense to you because you don't have the foundational understanding of what happens the minute you get redeemed, born again, adopted into the family of God. So, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 18, 21, 24. These are just 27 things. Just 27, 27 things that happened the microsecond you believe. Number one, in John 5, 24, it says we pass from death to life. Colossians 1, 13, number two, it says we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light. Now, I'm not gonna go pull up all these different scriptures. I'm giving you the reference so you can read them. Uh, it doesn't do either of us any good necessarily for me to pull the scriptures up because it's so self-explanatory within the verse. In other words, there's not much debate around this. <laughs> it's very clear. You've passed from death to life if you believed. Colossians 1.13, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to light. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 through 14, you are sanctified, set apart unto God once and for all. Number four, right? Number four, we are justified and have peace with God. 
That's the fourth thing. According to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we are justified and we have peace with God. Number five, we are reconciled to God and we're guaranteed to be saved by the life of his son. According to Romans 5.10. Number six, Romans 7, verses 1 through 7. It says we have died to the law. The minute you believe, you die to the legal demands of the law that were looming over you. The law declared your punishment and declared you guilty. And now we are set free from the penalty of the law and sin in order to belong to a new master. Romans 7, 1 through 7. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Number 7. Romans 8, 1 says, We are completely free from all punishment, from all condemnation, from all shame, from all guiltiness, guilt, like that kind of shame guilt, you're free from all of that the minute you believe. Number eight, and if I lose count, who cares? Romans 8, 4, it says we are made perfect. Here's why. Because the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. Is fulfilled in us. And for those that want to get... um this list, I'd be happy to send it to you. Just reach out to me uh, on my email. Email me at contact at abovereproachministry.com or go to the website or hit me up on Instagram and I'll send these notes to you. Romans 8.4, the entire demands of the law. Every single detail, every dot, every single crevice of the law, you perfectly fulfill in Christ. The microsecond you believe, he extends his own perfection to you. So that now when God the Father looks at you, he sees someone who has fulfilled the law because of our faith in Jesus who makes us perfect. Romans 8, 9, I'm going to stop using the whole, here's number 9 because I lose track. Romans 8, 9 says we are no longer of the flesh, but of the spirit. The minute you believe, you are no longer recognized or identified with your fleshly body or your body of flesh, the sinful nature that used to hold, wait, hold sway over you. That's no longer your identity or how God sees you. You're of the Spirit. Romans 8, 16 through 17, we are children of God, adopted into his family. And guess what? That means we are co-heirs with Christ and filled with his Spirit. He sees a son or a daughter whom he's well pleased with, not because you met his standards on your own, not because you measured up, not because you did enough good, but because Jesus has done everything for you. So, so God sees perfect children, heirs with his son, filled with his very spirit, the microsecond you believe. Romans 8, 16 through 17, we're children of God, right? Romans 8, 30 says that now we're guaranteed to be glorified. The process of sanctification and our progressive salvation has been set into motion, but it's also guaranteed by God who sees it all the way through and finishes it. So if he starts it, he'll finish it, and he'll see it all the way through. And there is a partnership going on, not by which I help God save me, not by which my efforts aid God in keeping me saved. And he's like, if you just work hard enough, but there's a co-laboring process and a partnership in which God allows us to be part of this beautiful process. Not that it hinges on us, not that it hangs on us, but we get to play a role. Ephesians 1.1, we are, the minute you believe, blessed, fully, eternally, and completely, perfectly blessed. That's your condition. That the soul level for all of you, as a person, you are blessed. With what? With every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
Every spiritual blessing God has at his disposal, he makes available to you and it has your name on it now. Ephesians 1.4 says the minute you believe you are chosen, holy, and blameless. In fact, you're chosen to be holy, set apart, distinct from, blameless, without blame. No one can bring an accusation against you because God has spoken a truer word. Ephesians 1.7, we are completely forgiven from all sin because the forgiveness God extends is according to the unlimited riches of his grace. So that means if God's grace is limitless and unending, infinite, thereby which the forgiveness that extends from that is also the same. You have that the second you believe. Ephesians 1.11, we have access to the fullness of Jesus' inheritance the minute you believe. Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 1.13, we are filled with the Spirit of God Himself, the very near presence of God, so that now we are the temple of God collectively and individually part of that temple, the second you believe. Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. And chapter 2, verse 22 tells us this, that we are the body of Christ, and we, are a, a, we play a role in that, whether you like it or not. You are a part of the body. Ephesians 2, 6. And this is all what happens the microsecond that you believe. We are raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Spiritually, where he is, we are. We are raised up in terms of from the dead to be seated with, alive with Jesus. Ephesians 2.13, we are brought near by the blood of Jesus, which is to say we have peace with God. We have access to the presence of God. Ephesians 5.8, we are the light. Ephesians 5.32, we are one with Christ himself. And mind you, all of this, I want to give you good news. All of this happens in one microsecond of belief. That's why we define faith first, so that you understand what faith is and how beautiful it is that God made it so simple, but he gives so much in response to that faith. Ephesians, or Hebrews 9.12, we have an eternal redemption. That's forever. Hebrews 9.14, we have a clear conscience from all sin and from all dead works. So sin can no longer plague my conscience. Sin can no longer condemn me. Any sense of unholy guilt or shame or condemnation that comes upon me is a false reality because it's rooted in a lie. If Jesus says there's no condemnation, your conscience is cleansed, you're perfect and holy and blameless, then to believe a feeling of condemnation or shame or false guilt rooted in that kind of, I don't measure up, that's a false reality you're submitted to. You're believing a lie and you're letting your feelings guide you over the truth of God's word. 1 John 1.7 says we are cleansed from all evil. 1 John 2, 13 through 14 says, we've overcome the evil one. He's underneath our feet because we are in Christ who has conquered and destroyed all darkness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, this is the last one. This is incredible. 
this is literally the, what the language used is used. It says, we are the righteousness of God. So for those of you that have weak hands and you're just burdened, you're like Eeyore. <gasps> Everything's negative. I don't even know if I belong to him. I don't know if I believe. Know this. There is assurance for the believer. The second you believe, whether you feel it, whether there's this internal battle, whether there's those, there are those moments of doubt, all of those things truly become irrelevant when you take God at his word and you read what he says about you the minute you believe. Is that not good news? So both the Lordship Salvation individual and the Free Grace individual will agree, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can tell and I've studied, they'll agree with all of this. All of this. This is not something progressively that happens as, as you, as like there's levels to Christianity and different tiers to reach and different like, I, I don't know, armors you're awarded, all of this. The second you believe. It, you can't even process it fast enough. You can't process it as fast as it's happening. Because all that, God goes, true. All this is true. Now, the born again experience is something I love talking about. Because there's actually like a logistical side of this. There's like a divine mechanism by which this all happens. It's, it's incredible. So what's really, really cool is that the way Jesus frees us gives us insight into what it means to live free. Or the way that Jesus rescued and saved and redeemed gives us insight and understanding as to what it means to live as the redeemed, as one who is saved, what that means, how I should function. In other words, the way you should see yourself now is through the lens of the mechanism we call the atonement. And I'm not trying to like just minimize the cross down to this like machine, but I am saying that what Jesus does actually has a plethora of functions. His life, his death, his resurrection, his burial, his ascension, all of that. And I, I touch on that in my book. But essentially, good morning, Leandra. Essentially, um, what happens is, I'm trying, should I get into this now? As we go, let's just move forward. The born again experience. This is what happens the second you believe. This is what John 3, 3 says, okay? Now I'm gonna show you in the text, not on that menu, in the text, what happens and what Jesus says is required, okay? Jesus answered him. Hey, truly, truly, I say to you, that means listen up. Unless someone is born again, and this one just destroys Nicodemus. He does not know what to do with this. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Which is another way of saying being a part of inheriting or becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. Being born again is a requirement. Now, what's really cool is that's what happens the second you believe. That's not a progressive process that takes place. Sanctification is different. Being born again, freed from the law and its legal demands and sin and death and the devil and my old fleshly body to belong to God, that is not a process over time. That's an immediate thing. 
It's like God's waiting for someone to respond and he's holding it. And the minute someone says, I, I believe, boom, all that. He's like, yes, next. Who's ready? Who wants it? Born again. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7 speaks of the washing of regeneration, how the Spirit is poured out and regenerates and renews a person through faith. In the theology of the Calvinist, the Spirit regenerates and renews a person prior to them believing, meaning they can't even believe until they're regenerated to have a nature that's consistent with belief. They're not even capable of doing it. They can't respond to the gospel in faith. I disagree. I think faith actually is the initiator, you might say, or the way into the regeneration and the renewal that happens by the Spirit. It says, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. But according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. So here's what it means for God to save despite your works, not because of them. When we talk about God saving or God loving, God loves not because I give him a reason to. God doesn't look at me and go, wow, he, has a, he gives me a reason to love him. God gives himself a reason and it's called grace. So to save us is to regenerate and renew us. That happens by the Holy Spirit. This is describing the born-again experience, where you are born again as a new creation. Now, whom he poured out. So the Spirit of God here is poured out by God, just like Jesus said in John 14 through 16. And the Spirit does the regenerating, does the, 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 the extending of the righteousness, does the applying of the work of the cross on us richly through Jesus our Savior, so that being justified, okay, by his grace, we might become what? Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that's the born again experience. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. And I'm just trying to give you a number of different ways to understand this. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy. So we know that we serve a merciful God one who withholds the righteous wrath that we deserve in order to extend us the grace we don't. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now notice this. It is not because Jason was so holy or because Jason proved himself and really wanted me or because Jason really uh, you know, proved that he, he had some potential. And I saw, you know what? There's something about him that makes me want to love him. It's because of the great love with which he loved us. So again, the love God has for us is despite my efforts, not because of it. You understand? Salvation is not a product of your works. It's a gift despite your works, which you can't use to gain anything. Even when we were dead, think of the prodigal son separated from the father. Think of Adam and Eve in exile kicked out of the garden, death mainly, it's always referring to at least this separation from exile. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, which separated us from God, he made us alive. How does God love us here? He makes us alive. 
not against your will, but consistent with your faith, together with Christ. So the same degree of life, think about this, the same degree of life Jesus has, the same degree of resurrection life he experienced, he gives that exactly to us. By grace, you've been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. This raising up and seating doesn't happen after we die. When we're made alive in the spirit, with Christ, saved, we are also raised and seated, raised from the dead as a new creation, seated currently with Jesus, which some would say, there's like another, how is it that you're here and there? I don't know if that's necessarily what he's touching on, except that the ruling with Christ and the absolute certainty of you being with him where he is, it's as if you're already there. Galatians 3.27, it says, As many of you as were baptized. So, now we're going to start to see the more logistical side of what it means to be born again or made alive. Because I can tell you like, hey, when you believe, you're made alive. And you're like, sweet. But if I, if I tell you like, as much as God reveals the logistics behind that, it'll blow your mind. So Galatians 3.27, it says, As many of you as were baptized, immersed, into Christ have put on Christ. So there's an immersion that takes place. There's a participation that takes place. The, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus and, and the ascension, he like includes us in that. That's why it says we're seated with him. We're raised with him. We died with him. We're buried with him. This is the baptismal process spiritually that takes place when you believe. It's that your old self goes down into the grave. You die, just like Jesus on the cross died. He was actually on the cross. Romans tells us all of human evil was taken up residency in his body of flesh in order to be punished and in order to be dealt with, right? His sin was condemned in his flesh. Evil was condemned so that our sin is put onto him. So in that sense, Jesus dies in our place so that I can die with him, go into the grave, and just as he came up to new life, I do the same. It's a, it's an, he's inviting us to come and be a part of what he's done. I'm not playing a role in doing or adding or making sure it really happened. It's just when you believe, this is what God brings you through. It brings you through the grave and up to life a new creation. Okay. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13. And again, the reason I'm going through this is because this is going to be paramount to understanding why I see fruit the way I do, why I see sanctification the way I do. It's all premised upon what happens the microsecond you believe. John chapter 1 verse 12 through 13, it says, to all, not to some, to all who received him, Jesus, who believed in his name. Now, interestingly enough, I'll get to this when we I keep saying, we'll get to this when we get to the fruit series, but the fruit's going to be awesome. When I get to that, I'm going to touch on something that has been said about the parable of the sower. And it's a, you know, essentially they're saying, anytime you see someone receiving, it guarantees belief. And I've actually come across a few passages where that's actually not true. To all who received him, who believed in his name. That's why this is clarified. The belief that actually results from the receiving in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, so notice this, there's a privilege, there's a right, there's an, 
there's a, it's almost like a, an air kind of language, H-E-I-R, not like Air Jordan or Air Bud, H-E-I-R. To, to become a child of God, you need to have the right to be that. You need to be given that privilege. And I've done a whole series on um, Hebrews where it talks about how Jesus is the only begotten. And a lot of people like to twist that and make Jesus a created being when it's actually saying the opposite. So Jesus being the only begotten son, that is foundation, and I, and I mean this with everything that I am, that statement, that identity of Christ is foundational to everything about our existence. He, like that, everything about our salvation and, and redemption and future glory and eternity hangs on Jesus being the only begotten son. And I've done a whole series on that. But essentially, Jesus is the true and perfect, exclusive son of God. And he gives us, as the rightful heir, he extends that right. He's the only one who has the power and the authority to rightfully extend that identity and position to anyone else because he made way for it. And he didn't just make way for it. He is it and... That, that makes way for him to be able to grant that to us. And so it's the whole born-again experience. Uh, kind begets kind. Vegetation begets vegetation. Animals beget animals. In other words, what is produced is going to be in the image of the likeness of what produced it. That things always produce after their own kind. That's the idea here. And Jesus, when we are born again, into the grave, coming out, we are born by the seed of the gospel that is essentially rooted in Jesus as the truth that produces after its kind. Not divinity, not where we are gods, but Jesus as the perfect, resurrected, first human from the dead. He gives us that identity and status. So he gives us the right and the privilege to become children of God. It's not just like, hey, you're a child now. There's legal language that's used. There's a legal contract, you might say. Jesus actually signs by his own blood to make way for our adoption into his family, who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And of course, some who hold the Calvinist theology will make this about, you can't even will to want to believe, or, or will to desire God, or will to have faith. And it's, like, it's not what he's saying. <laughs> but, but okay, First Peter 1. First Peter 1. 22 through 23, okay? I should have titled this The Divine Mechanism by Which Salvation Happens. First Peter 1, again, the, the whole boarding and experience. Uh, having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth, so faith, just, just, just faith, repentance, faith, repent, turn to God, all the same thing. By your obedience to the gospel, your soul was purified for a sincere brotherly love. Okay? In light of that, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living, abiding word of God. So when I say that the word of God is the seed by which God produces eternal life in an individual, I mean that. There's another way of saying that. Like Jesus grafts us into himself, and since he is what the tree of life represents, he is life, we're grafted into life. It's not just like you have life. Je Jesus will use that language where he says you have life. 
but you're actually immersed, your reality is one of life now. So it isn't just something to possess, like, I, like I'm holding a football, it's something that you are surrounded, immersed, immersed in you, you are grafted into it, you're attached to it, you're latched on to Jesus who is life. And the only reason that life has been produced in you is because of the seed that has been believed and received by you. Okay? And so the living, abiding Word of God produces a new self. Uh, when you look in the mirror, you, you are supposed to see a brand new creation created in the likeness of Jesus, spiritually. Now your body might be wasting away, you're getting old, you're like, oh, I don't look like the way I used to, but you look better on the inside. I promise you that. We've been born again, rebirthed, come to life. There's a rebirth that has taken place that requires the truth of God's word. And the truth produces that new life. So you might say, the life I now live is the source of that is God's word. And of course, you can say that's Jesus. Okay. But that's the born again experience. That's why we can say at the microsecond of faith, you all these things become true. It's a, it's a born again experience. It's a new reality. It's a new mode of existing. Okay. Um, and I can bring you to, uh, you know, Romans talks about how we went into the grave and it, it'll talk about how like, just like a woman has a contract with her husband, the marriage contract, they're bound legally, right? She can't f marry another. She's not free to marry another because of that contract. Um, she's bound to her husband or husband bound to her, her, his wife. And if one dies, then that legal binding, right? That law of marriage no longer applies. She or he, whoever dies, is free to marry another. And then Paul will use that as an example of what happened when we believed. We were set free from the curse of the law, the demands of the law. We were imprisoned by the law. We were enslaved to our sin and the devil had sway over us and had power and authority over us technically because we were the seed of him, right? And so we're locked in this prison hopelessly, you know, under the burden of, of not being able to meet the perfect standard. And then we are brought out of that. How? By dying. So our old self that couldn't meet the, the law, that old guy is gone. Now I can be free because my new self has fulfilled the law so I can belong to God. That, that's why there's a whole brand new self that comes into play because the old one's trash. The old one's condemned. The old one has penalty to pay and debt, but Jesus paid that so I could become something new. A person that has no debt, a person that is righteous, a person that is spiritually seated with Jesus and isn't enslaved to, the, to sin and, the, and, and darkness and the devil and death, but now I can belong to God. That's the, how you might say the legal process that takes place. Um, and so now we can say what we see in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, okay? This is where we get into more of the sonship and daughtership adoption, okay? So, so we talked about the born-again experience and somewhat of the logistics that play into that. And it's, again, it's going to be key to understanding why fruit, sanctification, and all these things, why I see them the way I do, Okay, because of the nature of our born again experience, because of what we're born to, because of what happens when we believe, we become children of God. Okay, first Peter one, it says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, according to his great mercy, everything God does for us, you're going to see it's according to his great mercy, according to his grace. He loved us because it's according to his mercy and grace. It's never according to your greatness, according to your works, according to your own obedience. It's according to his own characteristics and glory. He's caused us to be born again. Now, let me ask you this. Is this being born again against your will? Because this is going to be an argument we address later where it talks about how God causes us to walk in his statutes and then the free grace individual will swoop in, at least the extremist will come in and say, well, pause, that doesn't mean you're guaranteed to do anything that's consistent with the new life. So I'm just, I'm just kind of preemptively pre preparing you for that by thinking through this now. When we believe, right, and then I'm born again as a new creation, is that against my, did God violate my will by doing that? Did God like, <laughs> God, I did not ask, you did not ask for permission. I did not tell you you can make me a new creation. You better go back. I said, I believe. The question becomes, in order to believe, do I need to be aware of everything that happens as a result of that belief? I think you'd be silly if you said yes. That means in order to truly believe, you have to sign the dotted line after reading this long list of everything God intends to do, everything that's promised, everything you'll become, and then you're like, oh man, I, this is a really big experience. I gotta believe and this happens, it's a microsecond. It's kind of scary. I don't know, God, give me a minute. That's not how faith happens. It's like you believe whether you're conscious of it or not, you are born again. You are born again. You become a new creation. You get a new nature. You get a new identity. <laughs> it's incredible, man. If God waited to get your permission for what he wanted to do for you, can you imagine what that would look like? If he's like, just believe. He's like, hold on. I have a huge 48-page contract I need you to actually agree to. Like, I'm going to make you born again. <laughs> Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a new nature, you know? So it's like in order to effectively believe, I don't need to know every detail of what's going to happen as a result of that. It's this. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe Jesus died, resurrected, paid for your sins? I do. Okay. Boom. All that God does for you. I'm not saying it will never be evident. This is where the free grace in extremist and I part ways. And they say it doesn't have to be evident in order for there to be valid, in order for it to have actually happened, okay? Evidence isn't required. I say, I think you're gonna be born again in a minute and you might not be aware of it, but eventually you will. And you might say, well, if I believe, aren't I sure that very second of all that God's promised? We're gonna talk about assurance at the end of this message and what assurance means, what confidence means how that's actually affected by certain things. Um, so hold those thoughts. But know this, he's caused us to be born again. That is the language, that is the language that is used of God causing new creation in the new covenant to actually follow after his commands. <clears throat> okay, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I believe the Lord is asking me to make sure you guys understand this. Let me go back. When I say 
I don't have to realize I've been born again um, in order to effectively be born again. Uh, I'm not saying there will never be at all throughout your life. And again, this is where I differ from the free grace individual. I'm not saying there will never be evidence of said born again experience. But for, for instance, my own personal born again experience, I, I don't remember a day. I don't remember a time. I remember that I just believed. I can't pinpoint the moment, but I believed. Now, when I believed, was I like, <sighs> I'm born again. Or was I like, yeah, I believe. Yeah. I wasn't aware of everything that God was doing <laughs> to me, around me, through me, in me. I, I wasn't aware of that. I just took him at his word and said, yeah. You know, the life, death, resurrection is the only way into heaven. I trust in that, not in my own self-righteousness. I can't do anything, so I trust in you. Boom! All this stuff happens. Now you will see, eventually, I believe, biblically, that there will be evidence. The free grace opposer, extremist, would like to pose the question, I'm sure, well, how much? How much is enough? And I, I will explain when we get to the parable of the sower why that's a silly question. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's what we're resurrected to or born again to because there's a dual coming up from the dead. There's spiritually, I came up from the dead and I'm a new creation, but later my body will follow suit, meaning my, my inner self, my soul has gone through the born again process. My body has yet to match my soul, right? Or my, well, technically in Hebrew, nefesh includes a body. So for, for the sake of terminology, technically my body doesn't match my spirit right now. My spirit man is different than my fleshly body. That's why the resurrection happens. That's why you get a glorified body. Because right now, and I'm going to explain it to you in a way that's really helped me. I have been reformatted to be compatible with new creation. That's a really cool way of looking at it, to be honest. Like that's blown me away when I've started seeing my born again experience and my new nature as God has reformatted your very DNA and identity spiritually so that when new creation comes, you internally are reformatted and compatible with it. Because new creation is coming Heaven and earth will be united, heavenly Jerusalem, however you want to look at it, it's coming, okay? When that comes, certain people, those who don't believe, certain people, enemies of God, certain beings, even spiritual beings who are in opposition to God, will not be compatible with that new creation. It is made for the righteous. It is made for those who are spiritually alive and actually grafted into the life of God. That's why there's a there's a guardian angel and a, a carabine and a flaming sword. Yes, and a flaming sword, like just kind of doing its own thing. Like, what's up? That flaming sword that guards the, the, the garden so people don't get back in there. Because Adam and Eve, in their sinful condition, even covered by the, the, the garments God gave them, they are not compatible with the garden presence of God. Boom, boom, boom. So the body's defiled, but I've been born again spiritually so that now my spiritual DNA... My internal framework is set up and compatible for new creation. So I'm waiting for a body that also matches that. And we're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Woo! Here's another really cool eternal security passage. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Ready to be revealed in the last time. It's cool. Lord, teach me as I'm teaching. Galatians 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, here's how you can be a child of God. Besides Jesus giving you the right that you were not entitled to previously, besides Jesus giving you his very privilege, something else happens. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It specifically says he was born of woman. That's key. Hebrews tells us we don't have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weakness. We have a high priest that actually has been tempted at every point yet without sin. He is one of us. He's like us in terms of being a real legitimate human. You can't be the payment for human evil unless you yourself are a human vessel in their human likeness. So what Jesus does, he doesn't violate that and walk around that and be like, I'm God, I don't need to become man. He takes on our humanity to pay for humanity's evil. And he came born under the law. Why? Because we were under the law. Now, I'm not going to make the law out to be this negative thing. But biblically speaking, Galatians will talk about how we were actually imprisoned under the law. So with that language and that, that metaphor, okay, the word picture, the, the picture that, I, that paints in my mind is that the law acts as a prison cell, right? And just holding us there until death comes because we're on death row, waiting for the death that we deserve outside of Christ, of course. But now that we're in Christ, there's no death. death. So in that prison cell, it's like, oh, we're just waiting hopelessly to die. <laughs> Jesus comes in and it's like, hey, look, a new prisoner. He's like, no, not a new prisoner. But you look just like us. Trust me, I'm not just like you. And he comes into our prison cell to break us out from the inside. He's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. So that, in other words, here's the result, right? Here's, here's why he had to be born of woman. Here's why it had to be the right time. Here's why it had to be the son of God. Here's why he had to come under the law. Because we were under the law. And so that we might receive adoption. Okay? So adoption is something that God gives. He says, I want to adopt you. My son wants to give you the right to become a child of mine. Because he's paid for it. He paid for it. And because you are sons and daughters, let's be gender inclusive, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Yes, he has. Yes, he has. Crying, Abba, Father. So, using the image of Ishmael versus Isaac, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if a son or a daughter, then you're an heir through God. We always talk about how we have to be set free from sin. What makes sin a big deal? Well, because you're going against God. And? Because he said it's wrong. You're getting closer. Because God has declared by his very law, by his own standard, which of course he is the standard, but in the law we see 
that death is the result of sin. And so essentially God, through his law, enforces death as the result of sin. Because what decides that death is the result of sin? God, of course, but it's in his word. He declares that. He makes it known. He makes it known, like through the law. That's why it'll say, through the law came uh, knowledge of sin. The law exposes our sinfulness, exposes our inability to do anything hopelessly lost without Christ. <sighs> Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, it says, In love he predestined us. Don't get all Calvinism wonky on me. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus according to the purpose of his will. So part of the adoption process of God is that he has decided before time even started ticking, he decided in his divine foreknowledge and sovereignty that, hey, I am predestining this group of people to be adopted because my son is going to go down and make a way, pay with his blood, die their death, pay their debt, make way for their new life, be resurrected. So I predestine those who have faith to be my children. Those who don't remain my enemies. Okay. Romans 8 verse 14 through 19 is a cool one about adoption and what it means to be children of God. It says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I'll put that right there for later. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You received the spirit of adoption. So now there's a spirit of adoption. There was, you might say, the contract of adoption, the right to be adopted, the way we're adopted. Now there's the spirit of adoption. Interesting. In other words, the Spirit himself testifies of and marks us as one who's been adopted into the family of God. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's like very similar to Galatians 4. I was like, didn't I just read this? The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. This is going to be key when we talk about fruit. We talk about the whole, how do I, how do I know I have believed? <laughs> You'll know. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Amen? If we're children, then we are heirs. In other words, the logical conclusion is that to be a child of God is to be a co-heir of all that he has to give to his children. Um, let's mark this with green. And if we're fellow heirs with Christ... Uh, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the glorification is just as promised as the suffering that the child of God adopted and marked by the Spirit is going to go through. Meaning, look at this, the Spirit testifies. What does it mean that he's the Spirit of adoption? Well, God sends the, his very presence into us to mark us, to reassure us, to bear witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So this is, so it's like, oh my gosh. When we talk about like the Lordship side of things and it's like, you can never know you're truly a child of God because you might not endure to the end or you might not believe in the end of your life or you might not produce enough fruit in the end. You can't really know if you believe. And then the free grace side, it's like, well, you can't really know you believe because 
the whole being convinced is a whole subjective reality and it's like that means you get to determine in other words how does what is the basis of your assurance that you've come to believe that becomes the question for like the free gracer for for me i'm just thinking out loud like when they pose these questions i go well how do you know you believe not to doubt not to like cause any i'm just i'm just asking like because apparently you know and and they would go well i know that i know the way that i know i exist and it's like well we don't need to get philosophical i'm just asking how do you know you believe apparently in romans 8 there seems to be some very clear uh reassurance some very clear evidence that yes, I do indeed believe, and his name is the Spirit of God. There's the, he is the one who testifies with our spirit, bears witness with our spirit, that we're children of God. So there is this, in my own spirit, this, I'm a child of God. But sometimes, like, I don't want to get into the whole, like, your heart is deceitful above all, all but now we have a new heart. This is the question. I guess technically if you're deceived, you still have an old heart and you can be self-deceived. But when it comes to my spirit, I'm a new creation. I'm in Christ. I believe my spirit is convinced and certain I'm a child of God. The spirit comes in and he goes, let me reassure you. Let me really bear witness that you are a child of God. The question I have for the free grace individual who is all about almost skipping over the whole evidence and fruit and just being like, none of it matters. Not none of it matters, I'm not gonna paint a caricature, but some people I've talked to make it sound like that is just irrelevant to the conversation of salvation. Um, where was I going with that? And so I, I would just like to ask, well, how does the Spirit bear witness? How does the Spirit bear witness? To reassure you that your faith is indeed legitimate, because I think uh, the first episode of this series we talked about faith, and I do believe there is a false kind of we talked about this so don't you dare come against me we talked about the kind of faith that i believe is false misunderstanding confused uh, rooted in deception all those kinds of things so how do you filter between that how do you decide how do you know galatians chapter 5 4 um i just read this okay that's the whole sonship and adoption. If you're lordship, sweet. If you're free grace, sweet. If you're like me, sweet. We all agree on this. We all agree on this. Um, that we're children of God, that we're heirs, that we're adopted, that we're Jesus made way for it alone. We don't add to it. We don't help him. We don't keep ourselves saved. We don't, we don't look for any confidence in the flesh. In fact, let's look at the new man and the new life created in Christ. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. We all know it because they drove it into our minds in Awana just to get that chocolate Tootsie Pop. If you know, you know. It's like, oh, yes, I will memorize a whole chapter for that Jolly Rancher. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, meaning you believe, You are a new creation. Now, beyond just being a child of God, 
the, the reason the reason that like different language is used is because it like certain language resonates better with certain people and it also emphasizes a different angle of our new reality. When I tell you, hey, you're a child of God, you think like, daddy. When I tell you you're a new creation, you think, whoa, like not what I used to be. So it just carries a different emphasis. This is, we're a new creation. The old has passed away. Whoa, behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So guess what? If you believed, put your hands up if you believe. Like, if you believe, you know you believe. Let me tell you, that's what scripture te tells us. If, if you truly believe, you know you believe. First John 5. But if you believe, you are a new creation. That's what the text tells us. You are not what you used to be. You are not identified with any of your past trauma or, or issues or weakness or sin or any of that. Your old life, okay, has no bearing on your current identity. You, the, the old you, not just the old what you used to do, not just the old how you thought, not just the old, it's who you fundamentally were in the sight of God is nothing like what it used to be. Ephesians 2.10, get into more of the logistical side of this thing. I love that Marcus detracted that. I was like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Ephesians 2.10, okay. Right after the whole we're, you know, saved through faith. Look at what it says. We are his. We are his workmanship. This is part of the gift. This is part of the gift. Is that what God makes you through your faith, you're not even aware of at the moment of salvation. And you don't have to be, frankly, for it to happen. You just have to be aware of what Christ has done for you. And then God goes, all right, baby, let's get to work. And he makes you a new creation. It's the idea of in Jeremiah, God, uh, you know, the, the clay in the hands of the potter, God reworking Israel into a usable vessel, except now the the you might say the methodology through which you become new is in Christ. So God has reformatted you and you've been created in Christ Jesus. A lot of people take this passage to mean every human being on the planet is created in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're looking at Colossians, sure, like all things exist by him and through him and for him and nothing exists without him, absolutely. But this is specifically regarding those who are new creations saved. You are his workmanship spiritually. He has created in his son the same DNA that his son carried, you might say. I'm trying to get all, I'm trying to not get all like new age terminology, but I want to use language that you as a modern listener understand. Is it, the idea is, um, I'll think of it as I go. You're created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, you as a new creation, created in the Son, through Him, in His likeness. I think that's more uh, helpful to what I'm trying to say. You're created in His likeness. Because 
what God makes from your faith is going to carry the same, uh, uh, I'll, I'll say it like this. <laughs> this. This might sound weird. I haven't really thought this through. The raw material God uses, or I'll say it like this. <laughs> Another way to say it, the, the model when God is making something out of us and we believe he's making something the model he's using to make that is his son. He's looking at his son and just, and when, when we become a new creation, he's going, they're going to look just like him. They're going to be just like him. They're going to have his position, his righteousness, his holiness, his blamelessness, his standing as my son. And so I, I was going to say like the raw material of our new self is the DNA of Jesus, but that would get too weird for you. For those of you, someone would soundbite that and be like, heresy. So I'd be like, let's just avoid that. But in some sense, that is true. Like the life, death, resurrection becomes, uh, if, if we're baptism immersed into Christ and we come out a new creation, then it's as if we went through a tunnel and Jesus is the tunnel and we come out looking like him because we had to go through him uh, and be created in him to carry his likeness. That's what faith is. You're taking, and I think this is what Moses, in hitting, being hidden in the rock is foreshadowing is that he's taken refuge in that rock to behold the backside of God's glory. And we find refuge or run to or hide in Jesus, right? And then we come out, just like Moses comes down the mountain on his face, carrying the radiance of the glory of God that he beheld tucked in the rock. It's as if that's, that's what happens to us. That's what happens to us. Is we're in Christ we go through him in, the, in, in baptism, we're immersed into him, and we come out like him because we're still in him. And we, we, we carry, and you're going to see this in Ephesians 4. It actually says that we're made in the likeness of God's very holiness himself. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. And you're created for the good works he has for you. In other words, this is what's really, this is why I'm taking time on this, okay? Because I have not, you can quote me, as far as I remember, so far in the last like five hours I've taught, first episode three, second episode two, this one one, so like six hours, I have not mentioned anything about works. I, to my knowledge, I've not mentioned anything about works and that's very intentional. I'm trying very hard to not mention anything about works yet, but we're starting to move towards it. And works are going to be different than the kind of fruit that I have in mind biblically when I think about fruit. So I'm not saying good works are not fruit. I'm saying fruit is not limited to good works. But watch this. The reason you're a new creation with a new nature and a new heart and a new mind and a new spirit and a new identity and a new position. and a, You're new, man. You're brand new. You're completely unlike what you used to be. The reason God does that is not just so that you're compatible for new creation, not just so you can stand in his presence, but also there are good things he wants to do through you that in your old self as old creation with that old nature, you can't do. You cannot. You cannot. So we're created in Jesus for the good works he's prepared for us to walk in. That means to walk in them, I have to be reformatted at the core of who I am. I have to be. So whatever these works are, 
You can even say like an unbeliever can't do them or at least the way that I'm called to. With the heart I'm called to have while I do it. With the goal and the motivation and the aim I have while I do it, an unbeliever can't. An unbeliever can't. It's the whole filling, like, like Leandro says, the wineskin thing. Um, I'm just making note of this so later when I reference fruit, I remember what scriptures I really had to touch on. Really had to touch on. This is going to be key, man. I'm not going to proof text. I'm not going to isolate scripture. I'm gonna, we're going to build the, from Genesis to Revelation a theology of new, new self. Okay, even though this is all New Testament. Galatians 2.20. So do you understand like why God makes you new is to do something new? Let that ring throughout your heads. Why God makes you new is so you can do something new. It's not I'm going to make you new so you can do the old stuff. Doesn't mean you won't. Doesn't mean you will either way. It just means there is a purpose for the new self. Galatians 2.20. And you can go, well, even though that's God's purpose, it doesn't mean I will, so I'm cool to just chill and not really do. Bruh, bruh, bruh. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified, nailed to the cross with Jesus. Does that mean you atoned for your sin? No. It means he was the substitution for me. He was the substitution for humanity, Adam, on that cross. He was representing all of humanity there. All of humanity. I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, like here's the conclusion. It is no longer I, old I, that was crucified with Christ. That I doesn't live anymore. It doesn't mean there's not the residual effect of the flesh and it's not still like kicking and screaming as it's going to the grave. It means me in the sight of God not my old life. That old self is dead, crucified with Jesus, and we'll see the residual effects completely removed with a new body. But Christ, who lives in me. You see that? So it's Jesus who lives in me. In other words, as a new creation, with a new nature. It's not you, you, you. It's him, him, him. He lives in you. He'll do the good through you. He'll produce the fruit. Now we'll get into the whole, is that against my free will? I think it's likened to the born again experience. It's what God will do with someone who believes. Because by believing, you have actually become reformatted and redesigned entirely for the new he has for you to live out. And I don't believe it's against your free will, but I don't also, I also don't believe it's just going to be some automatic thing apart from my own conscious will and effort. There are some things, I'll tell you this, when it comes to the will of God, there are some things God has decided will only happen when human beings partner with him to do that. There are some things God says, I'm going to do it whether you partner with me or not. There is that distinction in scripture. And I think it's really important that we understand that moving forward. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Him being crucified was a gift to me. You ever think of it like that? 
Jesus staying there until it was finished was his gift. Yes, to the Father for his glory, but also to us. He gave himself. Then he'll talk about how righteousness is not through the law. If it is, Christ died for nothing. And that was a nice gesture, but it really wasn't necessary. But it is. Galatians 6.15. So this is talking about the new self, remember? You are new, you are new, you are new. Galatians 6.15. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Right? The physical markings on your body truly amount to nothing spiritually in the sight of God. They don't affect your position in Christ. But what does count, what does matter, is that we are a new creation. Are we a brand new creation? Yes. So why are you worrying about circumcision? Why are you worrying about you know, all these little things that don't affect your standing before God? Ephesians chapter 2. Let's keep going. Ephesians 2, 14 through 22. At least that's what I have listed here. This is quite the passage. I might just do here. We'll start here. Um, he himself is our peace, Jesus, who has made us both one. He's made us one. How? Well, he broke down in his flesh on the cross the dividing wall of hostility, I've talked about this, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Why? So that he might create in himself. So if you go back to verse 10, it says we're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Well, that's only possible because he tore down the dividing wall. So the dividing wall is torn down so that Jew and Gentile can be one because whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're being created through the filter of Jesus. <sighs> to become new creation so that we are the same. There's one new humanity in place of the two. So we are new humanity. Hi Paula, good to see you sister. Gotta jump on here more when you can. We miss you. Ephesians 4, it says, This I say and testify in the Lord, um, Hey, don't walk as the Gentiles do anymore. How do they walk? Referring to the pagan unbelievers. I know Gentile simply means non-Jew, but the way it's used is to refer to someone who does not have God, the God of Israel. Okay, they walk in the futility or vanity of their minds. It's fruitless. They're darkened in their understanding. They're spiritually blind in their reasoning faculties. When they reason through the world and see and process, there's blindness spiritually. Now, I'm not talking about just the brain. I'm talking about the, the, the core of the person, the mind, the operation center. Alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance in them. Why are they ignorant? Because of their hardness of heart. They've hardened themselves against the truth. That makes them alienated and still, uh, or ignorant, and still alienated from the life of God. And they're darkened in their understanding. And their minds are fruitless. Why does that matter? Because the walk is the product of the mind. That's why. They've become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. 
Hey, but that's not the way you learn Christ, am I right, guys? Assuming that you've heard about him and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, right? So not only are we in Jesus, but the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self. Ah, so we should be taught to put off our old self. Does that guarantee you will? It doesn't seem to be. Just seems to say as a command, hey, you were taught in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and instead be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So my mind needs to be renewed, so my manner of life, or my walk, will be consistent with the new life I have in Christ. This, again, touches on the whole connection between the new self and the new life experience, the new identity in nature and the new walk, the new mind and the new, like, practical everyday lifestyle. Put on the new self. Yes, it is a command to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Yes, it is a command to put on the new self, right? It is a command, which means you can choose not to, but it is commanded. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is amazing. When, if, when, uh, what is that? 2 Corinthians 5.21. When 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, we are the righteousness of God. This is what it means. Your new self, spiritually, inwardly, that you don't see in the mirror, but God sees, because he doesn't see the way man sees. He doesn't judge by appearance. He judges by the heart. He sees you as you are. That new self has been created in Christ after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The best way I can explain it is since God is the source of his word and the word is the source of my new life, then my new life will carry the same characteristics of the God who produced that life, being righteousness, being holiness. Of course, as he decides, I'm not a divine God, right? We're not gods. We don't believe that. But we do believe we're made in the very righteousness and holiness of God. That's insane. That, that's not saying like, hey, think of the most righteous person you've ever seen and, and holiness you've ever seen. You're that holy. It's like Jesus. He's righteous. He's holy. We forget that he's God. So if I'm going to be made in his likeness, then it's going to carry the likeness of his father as well, being the righteousness and holiness that he has. This is your new life, man. This is your new self. This is your new existence. Colossians 3.10, we are told to put off the old self with its practices. And again, the free grace individual will say, yes, but it's not guaranteed. It's not automatic. It's a command. You can choose not to. And I say, yes, I agree. But there's some things that need to be said about that. Put on the new self. You have put on the new self. Well, at least here, it's not a command. It's telling you that you have put it off and you have put it on. Whereas in Ephesians, it says to do it as a command. So it's both and, like your new life, you have put on, but daily, you gotta choose to put that on and actually live according to what you really are in the sight of God. And in the same way, you put off your old life. So live like you've put it off. Live like you've put it off. Now, here's another statement. We've put on the new self, which is being renewed. 
What does that assume? What is Paul's assumption about the new self for every believer? That it's being renewed. That's why he'll say your outer self is wasting away, but your inner self is being renewed day by day. So at least in the mind of Paul, it seems the renewal, the sanctification, the transformation is guaranteed to some degree. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So how, by which, by what method is the, the, the new, my life renewed and sanctified day by day? By what method am I transformed? Well, you gotta know the creator of that new life. You have to look at him and know him in order to become in lifestyle more like him. You become what you behold. So we need to know him. We need to know him. That's very key. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. It's funny, I was going to go here to make it, uh, to kind of further the point that uh, we have everything we need for a life of godliness, right? And it's through the knowledge of him. In other words, the life and godliness here is connected to and comes through the knowledge of God. Like if you want to live a godly life, everything you, you have everything you need. But it's found in the knowledge of the God who called you. Now you go to verse four, it says, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. This is why we talked about faith being a gift, not in the Calvinistic way, but the promises that come through faith are granted. So that through them, through those promises that have been granted, you may become what have we become through our faith? We've become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Right? So the corruption here in the world has to do with the sinful desire. Now it says we've escaped from that. It says through the promises of God, assuming faith, we've actually partaken of the divine nature. What? Bruh. It's crazy. It's crazy. We are just about halfway done. You know what that means. It's potty time. I'll be back. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. 
If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly <laughs> so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. Okay. We talked about the new self. We talked about the regeneration process as best as I can explain it. Um, I'm sure I'll learn more throughout my life and add to these notes. There's a lot more to learn. Now I want to talk about the new heart because the new heart is the key um, to understanding what God intends to do with us, what we should expect, what it is that faith is doing and working. The new man, the new life, sonship, the born again experience, and now the new heart. The best passage, New Testament, is going to be Hebrews 8. And then we'll look at Romans 2, Deuteronomy 30, Ezekiel 36, 2 Corinthians 3, um, <clears throat> and then Titus 1. Oh, I need to stretch. All right. I'm not yawning because I'm bored. I'm yawning because I'm exhausted. Hebrews chapter 8. This is, man, this passage has changed my life so many ways. It says that he finds fault with them. Now he's talking about the old uh, covenant, okay? He actually finds fault with the nation of Israel. But also there's something that needs to be improved. Um, something that needs to be improved upon uh, regarding the first covenant. And that's what the second covenant does. It's built on the first. It says he finds fault with them when he says, Hey, behold, the days are coming, referring to Jeremiah 31. Uh, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Okay. Now, if you believe this is a third covenant and you're dispensationalist, I probably can't help you. I, I'd have to undo what dispensationalist has, dispensationalism has done for you in order for you to see that the new covenant is what we're in right now and there's no third. <laughs> but... I'm just assuming you guys agree with the new covenant being the second established in Christ. With the, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, you know, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant. And I pointed this out before that the issue with the people is that they did not continue. Okay, 
there was something to be improved upon regarding the covenant, but the covenant itself was not a problem. The covenant is a beautiful gift, an opportunity. The people and their hearts not continuing is the problem. So what God does in the second covenant is he's going to address the issue with both. Being that, well, the first covenant depended on Israel upholding their end and God upholds his end, right? Or if they don't, you know, God's going to still be faithful to Abraham. But the new covenant is, well, God's actually holding up both sides. God's holding up his end, his end, and then in the Son, the eternal word emanating from the Father, Jesus, in our likeness, and as our representative, he holds up our end. I'm not holding up my end of the covenant, Jesus is. So he's going to fix that. Then he's going to fix the heart issue. Remember, the heart issue was, they didn't continue in my covenant. That is a big bummer. And I need to take note of this before I forget. This is going to play a role in the uh, talk about endurance. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days. Now, if you, got, if you get all caught up in the national language and you forget that technically, uh, you know, we are grafted into, and I'm going to be careful about my language here because people are going to jump on me. We're not Israel. Uh, we're grafted into what Israel had. Romans 9 through 11 makes that very clear. I'm not saying we are Israelites, but he will say in Romans chapter 2, a Jew is one inwardly, right? So a Jew is one inwardly. Jew and Gentile become one. We're actually grafted into their heritage. We can't just be like, you know, forget Israel. We're grafted into everything that they had regarding the, you know, the first covenant. Jesus fulfills that. There's all this conversation around, are we new Israel? Did we replace Israel? The point is, no matter what, in the sight of God, the people of God referred to as Israel, um, which the, the new covenant is for anyone who would believe and be a part of believing Israel, right? I will put my laws into their minds. It's a promise. It's not a maybe, it's not if they work hard enough, it's I will, in the new covenant, he's gonna solve the problem with the people by putting his laws into their minds. Now, mind can be synonymous with heart. Sometimes, um, heart is used interchangeably with mind to emphasize something different. Other times, they are different words. I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people. They won't teach each one his neighbor or each one his brother saying, just know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. That's cool. Now I don't rely on some priest to teach me or some uh, uh, priest to handle my offerings so I can at least come somewhat close to the Lord. I can know him myself. His spirit dwells within me. They shall all know me, the least of them to the greatest. I will be merciful. So not only does God solve an issue, I don't want to say an issue, but you might say, not only does God complete what the first is lacking in the first covenant, not only does God solve the problem of the human being, but God solves the sin issue as well. There's three things going on. He addresses the covenantal terms, he addresses the person, and then he addresses the sin and the debt. And here's what God does in the second covenant. I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Well, how merciful? 
Ephesians 1 tells us his mercy and his grace, which are endless, that's the, that's the measurement for how much he forgives us. And just to be clear, he says, I will remember their sins no more. Does he say past sins, sins they're really sorry for, sins they're aware of, present sins? It says sins in general. I'll remember their sins no more. Now, when this is being written, the author says, you know, what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish. And we see that essentially happen in AD 70, when Rome comes in and decimates the temple. So, what we can agree on, if you're not a hyper-dispensationalist, what we can agree on is that believers, Jew or Gentile, in the New Covenant, faith in Christ, have a new mind. And that mind has the laws of God put into them. We have a new heart. God's laws have been written upon that heart. Okay? They didn't continue in the first. Therefore, the heart and the mind issue being solved in the second solves the problem of not continuing in the first. Meaning, this is somewhat of, not only, but somewhat of my reasoning biblically behind why I believe faith by definition is enduring. And why when you believe, you're not locked into faith against your will, but the, the cycle has been, the process has been kicked into motion that God guarantees will be sustained and continue. The process of believing. Now Romans chapter 2 verse 29. We're going to talk about what it means that God's law is written on our hearts and minds. It says, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Spiritually, we're given a new heart, right? God takes our old heart of stone and gives us a new heart. Okay? A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So there is you know, biblical basis for saying that we are not new Israel, but grafted into Israel, because even those who believe and are Gentiles are called Jews inwardly. Okay, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. So what does the Spirit of God do? Well, the reason he references the letter, I believe, is because there might be two things going on here. Number one, um, God prescribed for Abraham to circumcise all the males in his household and all that would descend from him. It was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? That was physical circumcision. So in that sense, God prescribed that. The second thing is when it comes to the law Moses received, it was written on stone by the finger of God. Yeah? Galatians tells us that angels were there uh, dispensing and playing a role in distributing the law. Whatever that means. Stephen even references that in, in Acts 7. And so, the way God wrote his law on the tablets of stone, that's what's happening with the heart. That's the spiritual circumcision. So, we see Abrahamic, or the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision coming together with the law being written on the stone, and now spiritual circumcision is the law of God being written on the heart. Now, there are a couple ways to make sense of this. Some would say, well, the fulfillment of the law is written on the heart. In other words, 
I'm given a new heart, a new standing, a new being that has fulfilled the law in its entirety, for sure. The only problem with limiting it to that is that if you go up to the rest of Romans 2, it's going to clarify the law being written on the heart is not just fulfilling the law in the sight of God. It's also doing the law because the heart I have has a new set of desires. Okay, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. Uh, uh, Marcus says, ministry, imperfect service, not covenant. That's probably a better way to explain it. That's probably a better way to explain it. Correct, Marcus. Service. Mm. Actually, now that I think about it, I have to challenge you on that. I'll talk to you after. Romans chapter 2. Verse 12, um, all who have sinned without the law, and I've done an episode on this. I want to try and find it. Um, it's where I have like John Piper as the thumbnail. Let me pull it up, see if I can pull it up real quick. Because I've done an entire teaching on Romans 2 where the typical understanding is that this is referring to all humanity having God's law written on their conscience and they know what's right and wrong. And I believe that's a true statement, but I don't believe that's what Romans 2 is addressing. Okay. Let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, aha, it's this one. Romans 2 doesn't say what John Piper and Steve Lawson think it does. Uh, it's an hour and a half. So I'm not going to spend an hour and a half contextually showing you verse by verse why Romans 2 is talking about a saved Gentile, not unsaved humanity. But that's a typical view. And I think I've made my case for why this is talking about saved Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, not those who are just human beings. Because watch, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. That's true. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, you knowing what the law demands doesn't help you because it actually make, give, makes you more accountable. Now the law is going to judge you for what you know and can't do. It is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, right? You knowing what the law requires, you knowing God's commands doesn't help you when you stand before him. Hey God, I knew what you wanted me to do. He's like, yeah, you're supposed to show you can't do it and rely on me. Instead, you thought you could do it. You, nope, you're not getting in. So the hearers of the law, those who are aware of or know what the law requires and even try and do that themselves, they're not righteous, right? But the doers of the law who will be justified. Now I go over this in the long hour and a half video about how um, the justified being here is that doing the law throughout Romans is going to be to do the law perfectly, okay? For when Gentiles, but also the, the point still stands that... Um, we are not righteous because we do anything according to the law. We are righteous because Jesus did everything perfectly and we trusted in him. We're justified because he did everything, right? And we fulfill the law through him. And then, I believe, consequently, as a result, because he fulfilled it, we will enjoyably, not burdensomely, but enjoyably do it. Not to stay saved or be saved or evidence of saved or make sure there's enough proof that I'm saved, but simply because... 
I am justified, I will go and do what, what God has prescribed for me to do, and I'll follow his way. So when Gentiles who don't have the law, so now we're talking about Gentiles who don't have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Okay, so, so typically this will be uh, applied to you know, the people all around the world that haven't heard the gospel. The people who, you know, those tribes of people that we haven't reached yet. God hasn't gotten to it. It's like, well, how does God judge them? Well, if they don't have the law, they have it on their conscience. This passage isn't talking about unbelieving non-Jews. I don't believe that. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's something unique to the new covenant believer. That is. That's something very unique. That's what Hebrews 8 is about. God says, I'll write my laws on their hearts. What's he saying? Those who are not in the new covenant and don't believe don't have my law written on their hearts. So this is not just like the general, you know, we all know right and wrong. This is the, hey, you believe you have his law written on your hearts because you fulfilled it in Christ and you have a heart that is sensitive uh, to the things of God. Now I'll go over the common pushback I get from extreme free gracers. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. So this is the, oh man, this is such a good verse. Sorry, as I'm going through this, I'm thinking about like the coming episodes on fruit and all the things I'm going to have to, and this right here perfectly coincides with Romans 8, where in in Romans 8 it says, uh, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. And it's like, well, how does he do that? Well, the work of the law is written on our hearts. That is shown. That is shown. I'll say that again. That is demonstrated. That is visibly seen. The work of the law that Jesus has fulfilled perfectly, but I'm going to walk in as a result, not to stay saved or be saved or prove I'm saved, prove I'm saved or, or get saved, but because I am, that work of the law written on my heart is go- that I'm going to walk in, as inconsistently as it may be, is going to show that it is indeed written on my heart. And my conscience bears witness. Wow. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. I need to write this down. Sorry, you guys just get to be here while I take notes. That's, that's what's happening. And the funny thing is, this is the same letter to the Romans. So that shows the consistency of this line of thought. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. So, by Christ Jesus, may I not just end a verse improperly. So I want to show you that, yes, the law is written on the heart of the believer. The question becomes, what does that mean? Right, that that becomes the real issue is we can't assume that means something. We need to actually have biblical reasoning. Because when I tell you the law is written on your heart, you're like, does that mean I'll do it all the time? Does that mean I'll want to do it? Does that mean I'll never not want to do it? Does that mean I'll always have conviction of sin? What does that mean? Okay, I think we'll make sense of that. And then we'll talk about assurance. Oh, my friends, this just turned into a three-hour message. Hey, no one's making you guys stay here. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord, this is the covenant Moses prophesies of, or at least knows is coming. This is beautiful. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will, not might, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. You may live. Now you can say, I guess I would ask for those that want to say this is not a new covenant promise. When did this happen? When has this happened for Israel? When has this promise been fulfilled? When they came back from the exile? Um, when they became a nation in 19 whatever? When they, um, when did this happen? The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Romans chapter 2. And the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God. Is it interesting that the circumcision of the heart, Romans 2, Hebrews 8. I don't know how you could work around that being true of the new covenant believer. But you can, you can try. No matter what, the new heart is purposed for, you might even say, guarantees what God is calling us loving the Lord your God. You can say, well, that's just for Israel. Okay. Okay. Okie dokie. Because I know the free grace extremist will push back here. And say, well, how much do I have to love for it to be validated? How much love are we talking? In what way loving? Believing? I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel 36 says. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people. I will be your God. Hebrews 8, I'll deliver you from your uncleanness, spiritually, the list goes on and on. And then the actual physical blessing on the land. Now, I don't think we can say because there are physical blessings attached to this for the nation of Israel, that therefore the spiritual blessings promised to them um, are limited only to them. In other words, you can't have one without the other. I don't know if that's a reasonable conclusion to come to. What I will say is because of Hebrews 8 and Romans 2 and 2 Corinthians 3 and other passages that speak of these exact things for the Jew and Gentile, I don't believe we can just pull a trump card or get out of this free card and go, you know what? This is just for the Israelites. So you mean God won't cause you, like in John chapter 3 being born again, to walk in his statutes? Because I know the question becomes for the people who are tormented by not knowing how much works or what. We're not even, we haven't talked about works. But now we're starting to get to that. The new covenant, heart, new nature, the new identity, the new position, the born again experience seems to, to some degree, guarantee this. What that looks like, to what degree, God isn't specific. And I think that's intentional because, again, the parable of the sower will help explain. But we'll get to that when we talk about fruit. I just want you to see the new heart, the new spirit that is put within who? Not just Israel. These are the people of God. And if you say just Israel, well, Numbers 15, as Marcus loves to pull, you know, point out, Numbers 15, same commands and statutes, not just given to Israel, but the covenant. People forget about this. The first covenant was not just for the nation of Israel. 
it was for anyone who wanted to come and attach themselves to the God of Israel. Sojourner, stranger, foreigner. There could be Egyptians among them. There could be people coming from the surrounding nations. There are prescriptions for how they should function as people who have been, have been, uh, have attached themselves to the nation of Israel. It's not just for Israel. So in that sense, even from the beginning, Israel as a nation has always been about the heart. Like the true Israel, and Romans 9 through 11 touches on this, true Israel is not just, I descend from Abraham. True Israel is they have the faith of Abraham. So if you want to say this is just for Israel, sure. Israel being the people of God, anyone who has faith in him. Not necessarily just the physical nation that descends from Abraham. That's different. 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, it says, you show... Uh, let's just back it up. He says, you yourselves, talking to the Corinthians, hey, uh, you are our letter of recommendation. Because they're like, oh, no, you're an apostle. His apostleship's coming under attack. Well, you guys are our letter of recommendation. right? Like when you apply for a job and they want to uh, have some references, they'll call your references and go, hey, do you recommend this person? You know. And Paul is saying, well, you guys are our letters of recommendation proving our apostleship because... You guys are genuine believers. What does that make us if we preach the gospel to you? Written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Now watch. You are the letter. You are the letter. Think of the stones that had the, the commandments on them. Your letter from Christ delivered are written not with ink, but with the Spirit. Right, we're not talking actual parchment. You guys are the letter spiritually written on by Christ with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, just to make clear the comparison he's making. Because someone might say, you're drawing out a, an, 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 ice, uh, an unfounded comparison. And I go, no. He himself brings the tablets of stone into this. He himself says, hey, human hearts, not stone. Ezekiel 36, Deuteronomy 30, Romans 2, Hebrews 8. <laughs> How do you get around this? Even the people of God in Corinth are written with the Spirit of God. That, this is the spiritual circumcision of a new heart, right? This is the law of God being written on their hearts. I'm going to save this. I was going to mention something, I won't, but we're going to get to assurance now. It's about time we talk about assurance. I promised you assurance, I'm going to get to that. There are four things I want to say about the Lord causing new covenant believers to walk in his statutes and his commands by his spirit with the new heart, with the new nature. There's something, there are four things I want to say about that. The Lord causes his people to walk in his statutes by filling us with his spirit, giving us a new heart, making us a new creation, bringing us up from the dead so that we are no longer our old selves, giving us a new identity and position in Christ. All of that, according to Ephesians 2, is for the purpose of good works. The question I often get is, what does it mean that God causes us? Is he forcing you? Now that you're saved, he forces you to always do the right thing? No. We can still grieve the Spirit. We can still choose to violate our convictions. 
We can still choose to do what we know is wrong. We can still choose to sin. And there are consequences in this world with that. Romans 6, should we sin all the more so that grace shall abound? Heck no. I would say what it means that God causes us is that he enables us to be able to. He makes it possible for us, according to Philippians 2, to both will and to work for his good pleasure. It doesn't say work for salvation. It doesn't say work for evidence to know we're saved. It says work for his good pleasure because I'm concerned with pleasing and honoring God now that I'm his. If I'm going to do any works, it's from a place of security, not a place of needing to be validated or needing to to stay saved or keep myself saved, right? Also, I believe if he's going to cause his people to love him, these are not just good works. Watch. These are good works rooted in a love for God and directed toward glory, uh, God's glory. Two things that are initiated in us is this desire to please God, to work for his pleasure, and this love for God. Two things that an unbeliever does not have. Now, I will grant you the typical argument against this theology or against these statements from the free grace extremist is this. They'll say, well, unbelievers can do the right things. Unbelievers can do everything a believer can do. Um, Unbelievers can want the right thing even without the Holy Spirit. Like uh, if, if you are an unbeliever and you want to stop watching pornography, or if you're an unbeliever and you want to stop doing drugs, or if you're an, you're an unbeliever and you want to stop, uh, you know, lashing out in anger, you can have the same desires to do the right thing and avoid the wrong thing that a believer has. I'll grant you that. I'm not denying that. So the question becomes, what's different about the believer if the spirit of God and a new heart and a new nature guarantees something different, to walk in his statutes, to love him, okay? What is the spirit of God actualizing in us to be different than the world? What does it mean for God to cause us to desire to walk in his ways? Because if unbelievers can do every work a believer can, what makes a believer different? It doesn't guarantee you'll live holy. Here's what I will say. It does guarantee love. However you quantify that, I think you can define it in scripture. The new heart and the new covenant self guarantees love for God. He says, I'm going to make you new so that you will love me. What's what's the underlying uh, assumption? that loving him is made possible because of what he's done now in Christ. An unbeliever can't love God. When, when, when an atheist goes, I can do everything you can, you go, no, you can't. You can't love God. You don't believe he exists. The second thing you can't do is desire his glory or work for his glory. God is going to produce, as we'll see in the fruit section, Whatever good works are produced in us, through us, good fruit, good works, God gets all the credit. It's all for his glory. We partner with him so it's not to the neglect of our free will. It doesn't violate our free will. 
but I do have a new desire to love and glorify God through those good works. An unbeliever can go and do charity for self-righteous reasons or to get a girl's attention or maybe even just to like help someone. Okay, I'm not saying it's always selfish. But a believer, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing, but it's for the glory and honor of God because I love him, I love his people. Different motivation, different desire, different end result, different source. God's partnering, I'm partnering with God to do that. The unbeliever's on his own, maybe boosting his moral ego to feel good about himself and I'm a good person. Believers are different. So I would say what the Spirit actualizes in our life when it comes to works that God is the source of, that he gets the glory for, but he uses me to do, um, what the Spirit actualizes is different. The new nature and spirit are given so we don't just avoid sin, but so we want good things. When it comes to the unbeliever's desire to do good things, um, I won't make a general statement like that, but that's, that's all I want to say about that right now. Now we talk about assurance and confidence, okay? Um, assurance and confidence. Notice how I am trying my best not to say anything that isn't backed by at least two or three scriptures. Like, do you understand? I'm not just telling you a bunch of garbage and being like, you know what, somewhere in the Bible, I'm doing my best to load you up with all the biblical understanding. Let's talk about assurance. This all comes packaged in the new heart, mind you, because um, the spirit bears witness with our spirit, which I believe is a new, alive spirit as opposed to a dead one. I believe that uh, Romans 2... Was it Romans 2? Let me go back. Our conscience bears witness. The spirit bears witness. I believe the conscience here and the spirit can be one and the same in terms of that operation center of our life, right? So the conscience and the spirit testify and they testify to what? Mainly alongside the spirit they testify to the fact that we are indeed children of God. Understand that everything I'm teaching shouldn't undermine your security. When I biblically go through faith and repentance, it should boost your security. It should boost your confidence. It should increase your assurance. Because 1 John 5 tells us, look, he tells you one of the main reasons he writes this. Yes, to push back against Gnosticism. Yes, to you know, do all these other things. And so you may have fellowship with us. But I write these things to you who believe. Quite possibly, are there people whom he's writing to who do not believe? Dun, dun, dun. I write these things to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know. What? What can we know? You can know that you have eternal life. And you know, this is the confidence we have toward him. I don't know. I don't even know if I have eternal life. Bro, that's like the first, I don't want to like put people in categories at all. This is not my intention. But it's like you can move past the whole, am I saved? 
into such a confidence where you have confidence that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That does seem to necessitate knowing I have eternal life. How can I know he hears what I'm asking for if I don't even know if I'm a child of God? So it seems like knowing my position in Christ, knowing I'm his, is a prerequisite to knowing he hears what I'm asking him to do. And if we know, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we have asked of him. So this is not just God pays attention to me. This is God will act. And we've talked about faith in the past as it relates to prayer. So I don't need to bring that up. But there is assurance and there is confidence. You are, I don't want to say supposed to because that will trigger people. There is confidence and there is assurance that you and I have permission and reason to have. Don't think it's, it's arrogance. Don't think it's pride to be sure that you believe. That's not pride. It's not pride to take God at his word and to know you're his. That's quite the opposite. It's not arrogance to know I'm secure in his work. That's humble admission of what God says. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's assurance. Acts 17.31, uh, Paul talks about how God has given us assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. So my assurance in Christ or my assurance that I believe or my assurance that I'm a child of God is not rooted in nothing. It's built on the foundation of the evidence we have for the resurrection. We have much evidence. He raised him from the dead. There's the assurance that you can trust in him. Or Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ whom you guys crucified, he tells the crowds. So he points to the resurrection. He points to the crucifixion. He points to the fact that know for certain that your faith in this Messiah is not in vain. He is who he said he is by the evidence we already have. Okay, so uh, there is a place for apologetics and knowing why you believe what you believe and the reasoning behind it. Proverbs 3.26 at the end of the day says, The Lord, the Lord, not your works, not your own conscious efforts to believe hard enough, not your own ability to, to work yourself mentally into knowing. I, it's the Lord will be your confidence, not your works or your efforts or your holiness or your religious duty or the time you helped that family and sacrificed, not everything you've surrendered, not all that you're committed to. The Lord is your confidence. He will keep your foot from being caught. Proverbs 14, 26. You, you need to stop. The reason this whole debate is frustrating is because on both sides, lordship and free grace, there is a degree of looking at self. One side looks at self to make sure there's enough evidence and proof that I really believe. The other side is looking intrinsically for a, a kind of subjective, I need to know I believe. Because they, they, don't, they don't say there's fruit, they don't say there's evidence, so it's purely based on whatever their conscience or inner self testifies to. 
And I'm not making a generalization about both groups. I'm saying people within both groups. Even if you're like, works mean nothing, amount to nothing. They don't earn salvation. I don't even look at my works. I'm not even concerned with what I'm doing. Wherever you, or if you're like lordship, you're like everything I pay attention to the Lord. It helps me stay convicted so I don't make a single mistake. On both sides, there is the tendency and the temptation to look more at what I am doing or not doing or what I don't even need to be doing instead of him. Your confidence and free gracers, I'm talking to you. Your confidence is not even in your ability to believe or the degree to which you believe, if there's even such a thing, or the, the, the how hard you believed or the sureness. Of, just look at him. Stop playing mental games. Stop putting human measurements. Stop overanalyzing everything. Stop overthinking every dimension of the simple gospel. And just for, for the sake of your own sanity, look at him. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. You know, there is a appropriate, appropriate confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Such is the confidence that we have the spirit who has written on our own hearts. Is there a place for confidence? Yes. Why are you confident? Well, because I, oh, 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 you started with I. The confidence we have toward God, that I'm saved, that I'm secure, that I'm his, doesn't start with I. It starts with he. It starts with he. If you ask someone, how, how do you know you're going to heaven? You know, or what are you going to say to God if, if this is even a hypothetical? If God says, why should I let you in? You know, I don't think that's going to take place. But hypothetically, let's paint that scenario. What are you going to say to him? Because I gave my life to you. Some people would say that. So you're getting into heaven because of your degree of devotion and dedication to God? Now you're getting into heaven because his son made way for you to be there. So if your answer to how do I know I'm saved and go into heaven to be with God for eternity in the new creation is if it starts with I, if it starts with you, and your confidence is not in what Jesus has done for you, fix that real fast. Because you have permission to be confident. And if you're putting confidence in the wrong thing, of course, you're going to walk around with your head down. And putting confidence in the wrong thing isn't just works and fruit and good stuff I do and the dead works I'm trying not to religiously. It can even be in my own ability to turn away from certain things. Well, I turned away from, hold on. You denied your own self-righteousness. That's why you're going to heaven. Because your confidence is in your own ability to turn away from self-righteousness. It's, it's, very, it's very simple. Very simple. Why are we confident? Why am I certain I'm his? Why do I know I've come to believe? Why do I know I'm going to be with him for all eternity? That I'm a real child of God? That you are? The answer is always because he. 2 Corinthians 10.7 it says, look at what is before our eyes, or your eyes. If anyone is confident that he's Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. Are you confident that you're his? Now, the lordship 
individual will say, yeah, I'm confident, and they'll list all the stuff they do and the evidence of it. That's, there's a time and place for talking about fruit. So let me make a statement on both extremes. There are people who say, don't talk about the fruit or the works God is doing in your life, lest you be prideful. It's not prideful or boasting to talk about what the creator of the universe is doing with a weak vessel like me. They ain't, I ain't getting any glory or credit. Okay. In the same way, um, you can know for certain that you are Christ's. You can. You can. And if you start listing, well, the evidence is, well, stop. The, my confidence is not in the evidence for my faith. Uh, I'm, I'm all for, you're going to see this in the fruit section, I'm all for what the Bible calls fruit. I'm not against it. But if that's your confidence, is in how much fruit you bear, and how much you are becoming like Jesus, that's your confidence to get into the kingdom? That's your confidence you're his? Wrong. I should never have any amount of confidence to stand before God rooted in even the things he does in my life. It's what he has done for me, not even what he does through me. Don't conflate the two. What God has done for me without my efforts is the reason I'm saved. Not what he does through me with my efforts. Some of you are very uncertain and shaky and fearful and insecure because you've, you've found yourself more, than, more often than not finding confidence in the evidence you see in your life of the faith you have rather than he is my confidence. So yes, you can find confidence in your works to save you wrong. You can also find confidence in your works to give you confidence or to give you a sense of assurance that you really are his. I really do believe we need to rethink how we process the fruit in our life. I really think we as a church should take a step back and reevaluate how we're reasoning through and processing and thinking about what God is doing in our lives. Ephesians 3.12 says, Look, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in Him we have boldness. Where's, what is the source of your boldness to talk to God as His child? What is the source of your confidence to access the throne through faith? Your boldness, your confidence to access the presence of God as his beloved child, knowing full well you're his, comes from your faith in him, period. Period. Stop looking at you. You bear way more fruit when you look at him. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help us in time of need. Some of you can't even run to God in times of need because you, you don't even know if you've crossed the line to belong to him at all. You don't even know if you've started the journey of being his. So how could I run to him when I need him if I don't even know if he, he's my father? Confidence. Draw near with confidence. Boldness, assurance. I'm not shaky, I'm not doubtful. He's mine and I'm his, period. He said it. Hebrews 10 talks about holding fast to your confidence. I'm gonna bring this in for a reason. For you overthinkers out there that are constantly overthinking the micro decisions you make in your head that you never even follow through with, or the thoughts you have, or the ideas that come in your head, or what you did with, you know, what you didn't do that day. I can relate. I really can. But I've learned to recognize when my thoughts are starting to go on to me. And I'll, oh, I'll adjust that real fast. Because the longer I dwell on me, it'll either be pride or it'll be shame that results. I need to focus on him and who he says I am. Not who I think I am. Not who I believe in my feelings I am. Not what my life test of who he is and who he says I am. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Pause. The high priests in the Old Testament aren't really recorded as having a kind of like confident assurance as they approach the living God. There was a, and this is appropriate for the Christian life too, there was a appropriate reverence, holy fear, and a trepidation. You like that, John? That they would have. It was, there are bells hanging off me in case I did something wrong and in case I dropped dead in here. Not so with the believer. I'm not approaching God thinking, just in case you slay me, I have a couple works in my pocket I'd like to present. It's, you're my confidence. There's nothing more about it. You said I could be here. It's the confidence to enter the holy places. You're not just going where the high priest goes on the Day of Atonement. You're going beyond that. You understand that, right? You're not going into a building in a physical look. You're going into the spiritual holy throne room of God. And you have access to that with confidence. By the new and living way he opened for us. That's why he's the, he's the way. He's the door. Through the curtain that is through his flesh. Since we have a great high priest, notice how all the confidence is in the high priest. He opened it for us. He's the new and living way. He's the one whose blood I come through. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance. Is there a way to approach God? It seems to be with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Same language in Hebrews 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. When you approach God, and you say, I'm confident, are you certain you're his? Are you certain he's yours? Are you certain you belong to him? That's, that's appropriate to have. That's appropriate. And I'm not gonna say anything about if you don't have it, I'm saying it is appropriate, God is giving you permission and saying, I want you to have absolute full assurance that you have my life. This is God speaking to you, not you speaking to God and going, you have my life, it's not about 
what he has from you. It's about you having him and trusting in his son. Hebrews 3, 6, Christ is faithful over the house, God's house, as a son. And guess what? We are his house. That's kind of arrogant. No, it's not. I just take God at his word. His son is enough. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. There was a way to not hold fast your confidence and hope because it was always in the wrong thing to begin with. There is a way to do that. But when your confidence and hope is in him, the if conditional here will happen, which is that, well, you maintain or hold on to that confidence. And then the free gracer will say, so there's no room to ever like inadvertently or unknowingly rely on self-righteous works in a moment of time. I wouldn't say that at all. I've talked about faith in the past. You can go watch that. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence, our original confidence. Well, he doesn't say like, you got to hold it all the way through, firm to the end. There's a firmness to our confidence. It's so, it's, I'm so confident. This is what Peter says to Jesus, right? The crowds leave because Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood and we out. And he goes, you guys want to leave too? And Peter goes, no way. No way. Where else are we going to find the words of life? You alone have the words of life. To, to who else could we go to? That's the idea here is you don't have a backup plan. There's not like, a well, in case I, Jesus fails me, or in case I, it's, you're my confidence, period. Firmly, to the end. Now, the over-analytical mind wants to play mind games and say, well, how do I know I'm holding my confidence? How do I know I'm, I'm firm to the end? And over-complicating something very simple, to look to Jesus. If you can explain and define a moment of faith, then you can easily understand what it means to hold that to the end. Hebrews 6, 9 through 12. If I haven't already gone through this, I feel like I did. Didn't I go through this? Even though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. There's a confidence the author has about his audience. Things that belong to salvation, okay? There's a feeling of certainty. I'm not saying that's likened to our confidence because his kind of certainty seems to be a little different. We are certain we belong to him. Someone, else is cert someone else's certainty about my faith to me doesn't matter because I'm not going to stand before them. Their evaluation of me doesn't matter. I care about what God says about me and what my conscience testifies, what my inner man testifies to. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and love that you've shown for his name, in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you, show the same earnestness. Have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hold fast your confidence, guys. All that means is just keep looking to him. Just keep relying on him. Just keep trusting in him. If you did that initially, then God will, by his grace and sovereignty, through your free will decision as well, with your partnership, he will guarantee you continue looking to him 
and maintaining confidence as, as up and down as it may go. The scripture actually calls us to grow in our confidence and our assurance as the children of God. Colossians 2, 2, and you go, how can you grow in confidence? This is perceived confidence as opposed to actual. I'll show you what I mean. So he talks about how uh, for all of you who haven't seen me face to face, uh, I've struggled for you so that their hearts may be encouraged. He's going to describe what happens. Being knit together in love to reach, to reach. The reaching here has to do with being knit together and encouraged. And it seems to be the result of Paul's struggle and labor, right? He's struggling for them to be encouraged, knit together to reach the riches of full assurance. This is not salvation necessarily. These are people who already belong to God. They believe in the Messiah. They've heard the gospel of understanding and knowledge of what? Well, of God's mystery. I'm going to unhighlight this in red and let's make it green. Okay, so watch this. Here's how it flows. We'll read it all, all the way through. In whom okay, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We'll just highlight treasures of wisdom and knowledge here. Okay, these are the riches of full assurance. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. There's the firmness we saw in Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, A firm faith. Now, here's how it flows. Paul's saying, I'm struggling and working for you. That you'd be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. I want you to know the mystery of God, Jesus. Why? Because in him are the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the full assurance that's available to you. Uh, I'll say it like this. Um, how confident I currently am okay, is still less than how confident um, I'm, I should be. Meaning, uh, I'm trying to think of a good, a good example. There's an appropriate level of, a, of confidence that a believer should have. There's an appropriate level of that. And I'm not saying there's levels with this as it relates to salvation. I'm saying right now, there's, a, there's an amount of confidence that it would be appropriate to me. It's reasonable. God actually desires that for me. But my perceived confidence, how confident I think I am or think I can be is still less than that. God gives us permission to grow in assurance. So I can be certain I'm his. I can know what he, but I, I, it's almost like he's staking my, my assurance even deeper and strengthening that as I know him, as I know him. So whatever side you're on, if you're like, I don't know if I'm his, and, I, and you really do belong to him. If you're like, I don't, I don't even care about God, but I want to know God. Well, the, the, the solution is going to be the same. I'm going to present to you uh, the knowledge of God and who he is. I'm just going to tell you who Christ is and what he's done for us. And, and by looking at him, by knowing him, there's something about uh, how confident I become is how confident I'm allowed to be. How confident I ought to be, right? 
So this is not like levels of confidence as relates to salvation. It's like, well, if I'm not that confident, I'm not saved. I'm saying once you're in, in Christ, you actually become more confident of what he's done and who he says you are and who he is as you know him. Right? So there's, there's like um, this much confidence available to us. This much. Like when kids measure stuff, I'm this big. There's this much confidence available to me. I got to find more of that and experience more of that by knowing and understanding who God is. And as I do, how confident I actually am starts to get closer to the level of how confident God has given me permission to be. It's, it's amazing how so many believers right now are just sitting in such a low level of assurance and confidence because they ain't open in the scriptures. To, and this isn't like, oh, now I have more reason to be confident. No, my confidence is always Jesus. But as I know him, I start to realize just how confident he makes me. Wow. So this is not, hey, know God and you have more reason to be confident. Right now I have just as much reason for confidence as I will in eternity because he doesn't change. But my knowledge and understanding of him should be growing so that my confidence and assurance in him rises with that. Um, Philippians 3, verse 3 through 4, Paul will tell us, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. I don't, even though I have lots of reasons, right? Philippians 3, he'll say that. So my plea to you guys, and this is why, like, even the whole, like, well, how much do you have to do? And how far do you have to go? And how, to what degree do you have to repent of sins? That's why I can flip that on its head for the free gracer as well, who's extreme. And say, okay, you tell, you say to be saved, I have to have no confidence in my works or flesh, but all him. I would say, just like you're asking me to measure uh, and going, how many works do I have to have? I would ask you to measure how much confidence do you have to not put in the flesh? How do you know when you're not putting confidence in the flesh? What if you do put confidence in the flesh at some given moment along your life? Does that mean you haven't believed a real gospel? I could flip it on you too. I'm not trying to. I'm just saying the same rebuttals that I hear, it, it's like, have you not processed this the same way? Because you're saying I have to deny self-righteousness in order to trust in Jesus alone. No confidence in my flesh. Well, how little confidence should you, are you allowed to have in your flesh? What do you, how do you not have any? How do you qualify that? I can be just as philosophical. I'm, it's just ridiculous. It truly is. It truly is. That's why this whole thing frustrates me because on both sides, it leaves people like overly analytical about something. If it's not the Lordship looking at fruit, it's the, <laughs> it's the free gracer overanalyzing themselves making sure they're not looking at fruit and not looking at works and putting no confidence in flesh. So they're doing the opposite, the, the, the lordship individual is doing, but it's still this overanalyzation that cripples them. I'm just making sure I'm not putting confidence in my flesh. I'm making sure I'm not trusting in my works, not trusting. It's like, bro, look at him. Let's, let's, not, let's make this as simple as it should be. Look at him. Do you see it? Jo I won't go there actually. 
The last thing I will say about confidence and assurance is that it's affected by our lifestyle. Now, hold on. Before you free grace extremists and lordship individuals attack me, I get both sides, by the way, because they know I don't identify with either. Dr. Dennis, uh, I think his name's Rosker, Rokser. Dr. Dennis Rokser, you can look him up. In fact, let me make sure that's his name before I... James, you nailed it. Sounds like they might be looking to themselves instead of looking to him. Is that not the accusation the extreme free gracer brings against... And I'm not defending lordship here. I'm saying this is what they say about lordship individuals. It's like, stop looking at yourself. I'm going to say the same thing to you. Stop looking at how much you're not looking at um, your fruit. <laughs> In fact, I'm going to write this down. Stop looking at... I'm going to use this. How much you're not looking at yourself for fruit or how much you're not putting confidence in your flesh or turning from self-righteous works. Do you see how overcomplicated both sides can be? You see it? Um, I believe his name is Dr. Dennis Roxer. I could be wrong. Yeah, Dr. Dennis Roxer. Now, I listened to, at, just from him, uh, about 20 hours on him, not attacking Lordship, but really breaking it apart. And so it was helpful. It was helpful to hear that. But this is what he actually said. I didn't get the exact quote, okay? I didn't get the exact quote, but in his presentation on Lordship versus Free Grace, he even admits that believers can lose assurance over time. Not their reason for assurance, not actual confidence, right? Not that they're less secure, but their perceived assurance. They can lose assurance over time as they continue to live in sin, especially unrepentant, right? But they don't lose actual security. They don't lose, it's just perceived security. It's, it's, it's the difference between how safe I am versus how safe I feel. It's the difference between how secure I am in Christ versus how secure I feel in Christ. And he'll say that, that, that feeling of security can go down as you live in sin. Now, if there is no direct correlation between salvation and the fruit that's born from faith, I would have to ask, why is that a logical conclusion for him? Why are the two things connected? But let me just prove to you in scripture, 1 John 3, 21. Um, it says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You know, 1 John talks about how like, your heart will try and condemn you. It's almost like I'm more vulnerable to the lies of my own flesh. I'm not going to say heart because you guys will get on me. We have a new heart. Okay, just to avoid that terminology, there are times where my own flesh or my own unregenerate self still, whatever you define that, where I will try and convince myself or the world will try and convince me that I'm not as secure as I think. And I'm more vulnerable to that deception or those lies when I'm in sin. I, I, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You and I both know exactly what I mean. When you have just sinned or you struggle in sin or you're in this season of really giving in a lot and it's like, whoa, you're more vulnerable for some reason to the attacks of condemnation and shame that are lies, 
They are wrong. They're not rooted in truth, but there's still something we're wrestling with. And your heart tries to condemn you. Again, I, not hard. It says right here in 1 John 3, 21, okay? So for those of you that are like, what about the fact that we have a new heart? Your heart doesn't condemn us. If your heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. You might say this is talking about a believer whose heart will not condemn them, right? So the absence of condemnation proves they're his, or an unbeliever will have that condemning heart. I don't think so. I think the point is, um, here, I'll try and pull it up. I guess it is this passage. Depends on what translation you use. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive him because we keep his commandments. Now, the commandments are explicitly stated in 1 John as believe, and then from that place of believing, once you're saved, there ought to be some kind of love you see, right? And doing what pleases God seems to affect the level of confidence we have before him. Not, and, and again, this is how confident I feel, not how confident I truly should be. This is how secure I feel, not how secure I really am. First uh, John 4, 17, just to skip down. And I know some people are going to be like, First John's all about defending Gnosticism. I don't disagree. Just because First John is, is, has a lot to do with not defending Gnosticism, but pushing against Gnosticism, doesn't mean that the rest of it we can just kind of shove through that filter and be like, ah, oh, it's just addressing Gnosticism. First John 3, verse 20, uh, 417 says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we, must, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. How? Here's the reason. Because, as he is, so also are we in this world. Well, that's spiritually and positionally. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So the as he is, is the fact that we are loving as he loved us. That's the as he is. In other words, the statement goes like this. Love is perfected with us, right? Uh, so that we can have confidence for the day of judgment because... Because, so either the love being perfected here is, here's the because, or here's why we have confidence for the day of judgment. I think they both go hand in hand. So we have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is loving, so also are we in this world. Now, before you accuse me of adding love to faith, it's like faith plus love equals salvation. Now what I'm saying, or salvation equals faith plus love. Now what I'm saying, I'm saying your level of confidence for the day of judgment or your perceived confidence or how secure you feel does relate to how well you're walking in his love. First John 2, 28 through 29, and then I'm done. I promise. It says, little children abide in him. Remain, continue, stay. So that when he appears, second coming, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. Well, that's talking about faith. When you believe, you have abided. Or several free grace teachers like Dr. Dennis Roxer will say, I'm probably saying his name right, don't get mad at me, will say that, well, John 15 is not abiding salvifically. It's once you're saved, the sanctification. Okay. Therefore, you are somehow saying, well, I don't want to get into that, but if you know that he is righteous, you can be sure everyone who practices righteousness 
has been born of him. There's no way of getting around that. You might say, well, the practicing righteousness is believing, doing the command of God. The practicing righteousness is very clear. Very clear. At least to me when I read this, not walking in darkness, not living in sin. Um, I could probably break this down even more later. But the point is, watch. If he's righteous, part of the confidence that I'm his is that I see righteousness being practiced in my life. I tried not to get into works and fruit yet, but it's just happening. We have arrived. We have arrived on the shores of talking about sanctification and fruit just in time to end. But look at the confidence we have for when he comes, not how confident I actually am allowed to be, not how secure I really am, but my perceived confidence and the security I feel does relate to practicing righteousness as he is righteous. Now this isn't saying, hey, do righteousness to be righteous. It's he's righteous, he makes you righteous. Then this goes back to the whole seed thing. Uh, as he is, so are we, right? He produces after his own kind. So we are going to be like him because we are righteous. Our lifestyle, practicing righteousness, living as Jesus did, does affect our level of confidence in this life. That's why some of you don't feel confident. You're like, I know I'm saved. Like, I know I'm his. I know I believe. I've been down this road so many times. Why am I still here again? You living in sin, unrepentantly, does affect how confident you feel or how vulnerable you are to the attacks of shame and condemnation and the lies that the world throws at you and the enemy throws at you. So I just want to say, yes, you should be assured, you should be confident, you should be certain you're his. Part of that, even by admission of this beautiful Dr. Dennis, who is an advocate for free grace, he admits our level of confidence or feeling of security does go up and down based on the life we're living, either in sin or according to the ways of God. You have to ask yourself, why? Why is that a legitimate biblical connection that even one of the better teachers of free grace admits? Why? I'll leave you guys on a cliffhanger. Have fun with that one. If you guys didn't know, this is AboveReproachMinistry.com. Everything we have available, you can find on our website at AboveReproachMinistry.com. If my website wants to get pulled up, there we go. You can see it right here. Brand new podcast. All the stuff we do here is in podcast format. YouTube, we have tons of free stuff. Free content. I have a book. I'm kind of rushing through this because, I'm frankly, I'm, my, my legs are hurting. Um, you can get some merch. You can get a copy of my book. You can join our online church. What, what? Put your hands up if you're in the online church. That's uh, on Discord. It doesn't mean we sow Discord. It just means we use the Discord app. We also have all these sermons on podcast and... Uh, the second podcast that uh, every Tuesday there's an episode released all about the church and how to function as the church. So Above Reproach Church Podcast is our second podcast. And then you can always give to this ministry however you feel led. All right. All right, guys. I'm tired. I'm out of, I'm, I'm out of it, to be honest. I'm, I'm gone. I'm spent. 
And so pray for me as I prepare for tomorrow and Friday. Um, there's a reason I'm doing it all in one shot. There's a reason I'm pushing myself. All right. I love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. Pray for me. I really mean it. Like, I'm not just throwing this out there. Pray for me.